Father, we are embarking now this evening on an important journey, but one that could be dangerous if, if done with the wrong heart posture. If looking at this doctrine of your decrees as it relates to salvation and judgment, Lord, is done with an arrogant, boastful heart, then it's nothing more than a sword by which we cut others. Father, also guard us on this journey this evening against allowing perhaps preconceived ideas of what you are like and who you are to serve as obstacles to seeing what the scriptures say. We need you, Holy Spirit, to give us a clear mind to believe what you have made clear in your word, not perhaps what we were taught, what we've grown up with, or what makes us uncomfortable. God, you are God and we are man. Therefore, we should be uncomfortable as you challenge our understanding of life as we know it. So go before us now, Holy Spirit, grab hold of our hearts. May our hearts be teachable. And may we worship you this evening in this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't normally start off with illustrations. But as I thought about the nature of this topic, I couldn't help but think of one that is so fitting. I'm a huge Chronicles of Narnia fan. Huge. Uh, I, I try to read the entire series at least once a year. And in that series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, one of the books is titled The Silver Chair. Depending how you arrange that sequence, uh, it could be considered the sixth book. And in The Silver Chair, it starts with these two classmates. You have Eustace and you have Jill Pohl. And they're sitting around and they're complaining, like most students would do, about how horrible school is. And Eustace tells, Eustace tells Jill that there was this one time that he went to this place called Narnia. And he starts telling her all about Narnia. And Eustace thinks that perhaps if they start crying out for the king of Narnia, crying out the name of Aslan that they would be able to go there. So they start yelling out, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. And at that moment, some bullies show up on the scene. And these bullies start to chase Eustace and start to chase Pole, uh, Jill. They call her Pole in the book. And so they're running and they get to this dead end and there's this big stone wall with a door, but that door's always locked. And so there they are, but this time the door's not locked. And so they go through the door, but as they go through the door, as you can expect, they're transported back to Narnia. Well, Eustace goes back to Narnia. This is Jill's first time. And they encounter there this magnificent lion, which is Aslan. And Aslan tells Eustace and Jill that he called them out of their world for a special purpose. But Jill's response is, quote, Nobody called me and scrub here, you know. It was we who asked to come here. This, this is mine. And Aslan's from last reply. Chicken no, I had chicken napolitana. She did. Tell Dad to try it. He might have liked it. So, Dad, was that with eggplant? Aslan's reply to everyone is to Eustace and Jill, "You would not have called me 
unless I had been calling to you. It is true that Jesus and Jill were calling out, but they had only called because Aslan had called them. And this illustrates what we're trying to talk about this evening. How it is that we end up responding to God's call because it is God's call. It is God's election. We think that we came to God first, but the reality is that God from eternity past had decreed the election of some to be his children. And so God is the one who elects, God is the one who calls, and then we respond. And so let's now talk about God's decree of election. So the first thing we have to see is that we've been elected unto salvation. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because you were so smart. It's because God from eternity past decreed that you would come unto salvation. God has decreed from eternity past that some people would come to salvation. But this is not because of anything that they've done. Nobody's a Christian because they did something to earn it. Nobody's a follower of Jesus because there was just something virtuous inside them that made them deserving or attractive to God. You know what? There's something about that guy right there. I want him. That is not it at all. When we talk about God's decree of election, it is 100% of his grace and his love, not at all of our merit. We did nothing. It's been rightly said It's always attributed by different people, so I'm not sure who said it, but it's been said, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it possible. And so here's some, let's look at some verses. Let's see how our election is from eternity past. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Ephesians one, four reads, just as he chose us in him, before the foundations of the world. Before the, before the first grain of dirt existed, those who are truly followers of Christ and those who will be followers of Christ were chosen by God. You also can read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's decree of election took place in eternity past. It's also important to understand that it was this election, this decree of election was completely by God's choice, his sovereign choice. God was not forced, compelled, or persuaded to elect anyone. We can start in the book of Exodus. Well, I mean, this is the story of the entire scriptures. Why did it, God chose Abraham? Abraham didn't choose God. Why did God choose the nation of Israel? Why did God choose Moses to be his representative? Why did God choose anyone? Listen to Exodus 33, verse 19. And he said, 
I will, I myself will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The apostle Paul picks up on this later. We'll see in Romans nine. Or how about Isaiah 65? Isaiah 65, verse 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here, I, here am I, here am I, to a nation who did not call on my name. It's God's choice, God's revealing. John chapter 15, verse 16. John 15, 16 reads, you did not, this is Jesus speaking. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. Interestingly here, we see the election is done by God, but also the fruit you bear is attributed to God. And the fact that your fruit abides, the fact that your fruit remains is all glory to God. Two chapters later, John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men. This is Christ speaking to his father in prayer. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. I just thought of one on top of the head, John six forty four, such an important one. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then we can go to the glorious chapter of Romans chapter nine. And listen to Romans chapter nine, verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father, Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, had, done, had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. By the way, hated here isn't malice, like we think of. Hatred here means not receiving God's favor, divine favor. There was, they didn't do anything. It was simply by God's sovereign choice, his election. And it's important to remember that it is always done out of his grace and love. I can't think of a chapter in the entire Bible that makes that more clear. And I can already see Carol smiling than Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, listen to verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. Verse 11, in him 
we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It was God's free grace. It was his choice. It was his purpose to choose who he chooses. I know that's frustrating. That can be debated by people. And we'll get into that. And we saw in Romans 9, the Jacob and Esau passage, that it's not based on anything we do. It's no merit. Now that Romans 9 passage, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Some people will say, well, yeah, but Romans 9, it's talking about nations. That's not how it's talking about nations. Sure. What are nations made up of? Individuals, right? People. Okay. So if nations are made up of people, to say that a group in its entirety is elected, but not all of them truly believe would be illogical. It It doesn't fit. You can't say, well, that's speaking of Israel, but then not all Israel's elected. These passages in Romans 9 are talking about individuals. And we have, and again, we compare scripture with scripture. That's how we come to understandings. So let's look at how other passages root election and root salvation in individuals. John chapter 13. In John 13, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. He's talking to Israel. So obviously this Jacob reference could not be all Israel. I know the ones I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. Speaking of individuals that Christ has chosen. Or how about Romans chapter 11? Verses five and six. Romans 11, five and six. In this way, then, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has also come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. This remnant is speaking of individuals. We see in the rest of Romans 11 that this remnant is Jew and Gentile. last verse to show that it's not speaking of nations simply is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things of the, which are strong. And the base things of the world, which are despised, God has chosen. And the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Talking to individuals, reflect in your salvation. And so we see that this elect, some have from eternity past, have been chosen by God, elected by God to be his people for all eternity. That it was God's sovereign choice. He wasn't forced or compelled to do it. It was out of his free grace and love. Now, that's controversial. But here gets where we're going to get to the other side of the coin where it starts to get really difficult for some people. If some are elected, that means some are not elected. 
And I anticipate as we go through this section, there'll be questions, write them down because this is an important thing for us to understand. Those who are not elected are left in their sin, which means they stand rightly condemned by God. And I can already hear some people saying that's not fair. And you know what? They're right. They're 100% right. It's not fair. Because it's not fair that anyone should receive salvation. Everybody deserves God's righteous judgment. Everyone deserves God. You and I deserve God's judgment. It is not fair that he called me unto himself and gave me salvation. It was grace. That's the scandal of the gospel. And this means now we have to approach a topic that very few people want to talk about these days. They're squeamish to talk about. And it's the fact that if God chooses someone to salvation, why did he not choose others? Why did he not extend saving grace to everybody? Why not universalism? Why has he chosen to pass over some and not others? Has he? Like, what's going on here? We need to dispel some distortions. God passing over some and electing others does not mean that somehow God intervened in people's lives and made them sin and made them unbelieving. If somebody doesn't believe in Christ, it's not because God made them unbelieving. God saving some and not others, we'll see is his grace. Even when you think about Pharaoh and the hardening of hearts, well, wait a minute, Alex. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He made Pharaoh sin. He made Pharaoh say, no, I will not let people go right. God intervened in Pharaoh's? No, we have to understand this properly. When God hardens a heart, he is not creating a new, fresh evil in someone's heart. Rather, what God is doing is he's giving them over to the sin that is already in their hearts. He is removing his hand of common grace, his hand of restraint, and allowing them to pursue the very sin that is alive and well within them. He's not creating a new evil. There's plenty there already. God does not create evil. Sadly, that hardening of heart that we see of Pharaoh happens every day. Do you realize when you share the gospel with somebody, you're either planting a seed that will lead unto salvation, or by preaching the gospel to somebody, you've been the instrument that God has used for them to harden their hearts even more for the day of judgment. That's just the reality. Souls are, this is why, like, we need to take more serious what it means to share Christ with people. It's not simply some cute four spiritual laws, some illustration you make on napkins. No, we are pleading with people to come unto Christ that God would give them a new heart. Because when we proclaim the gospel, it's not about, yeah, I shared the gospel with five people this week. Stop bragging about it. You're God's instrument that's either going to lead somebody unto salvation or you're acting as God's instrument so that when they appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he will say, you are without excuse because on March 20th, 2022, Alex proclaimed the gospel. You heard it and you hardened your heart. 
So we need to stop talking about even how we share Christ with people with such kind of flippancy. It's, we're talking about weighty eternal things here. When Moses appeared before Pharaoh, Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. Moses was God's instrument in, Moses, in the life of Pharaoh. And we're the same way. Think about it this way. The same sun that melts wax will harden clay. Now, I want to be clear, God hardening people by removing his hand of common grace, God choosing and electing someone to salvation by his, by his will of decree, does not mean there's any injustice upon God. Nobody is a victim. Well, he didn't choose me. You didn't want him. No one's a victim. God owes no one anything except justice. And so I've had some ask, but God's causing the unbelief, isn't he? So we're going to get a little, a little nerdy here with some theology. So bear with me. God's decree of election is done in light of the fall of the human race. Here's what I mean by that. We're not talking about things taking place in time as much as we're talking about God's logical order of decrees. What I mean by that is God decreed the creation, God decreed the fall, and then God decreed election. That is a logical order of decrees in the mind of God. It's not how they have, we're not talking again about time as much as order of events as they play, as he ordained them, decreed them. And we know that that's the case because of what it says in Romans 9. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This was something I realized this week, preparing. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Think about this. Mercy could only have been shown if God ordained, decreed the fall first. Because there could be no mercy if there had been no fall. God elected sinners unto salvation. It presupposes the need for it. Otherwise, there would have been no such thing as election. So there is no injustice on God's part. God is not the one creating evil. God did not say, as he's going down, well, I'm going to create this person for heaven, this person for hell, this person for heaven, this person for hell. Now let me create the world. Now let me create the events that will take place. Now let me decree the fall. No. In, God's, in the mind of God, he decreed all creation. He decreed, ordained the fall, and then decreed election. If God had elected prior to the fall, then God would be the author of evil. But that is not the case. God electing some by his decree and others leaving them in their sin, we know that that means he never forces anybody to sin. He never forces anyone to disbelieve. It's a result of man's own actions. 
In saving some, he shows himself gracious. In, elect, in electing some, he shows himself gracious. In passing over some, he shows his justice. That's such a hard concept, I understand, for many to accept at the heart level. And I say this not, you know, with any compassion, but that's because we have ourselves at the center of that math problem. If we focus on the fact that God is most consumed most driven, most desirous of glorifying himself in the fullness of he is, then we understand, yes, God owes no man nothing, he, but he shows his, he glorifies himself in his grace and he glorifies himself in his justice. And it's all about him. The hardest part of coming to grips and delighting in the decree of election, the hardest part is getting yourself off the center of the stage. Now, I talked about this last week, right? God's decree, we talked a little bit about God's foreknowledge. We talked about how some people simply think that God's election is based on him looking down the corridors of time and recognizing who would and who wouldn't repent and believe on Christ. That's how they define foreknowledge. But that's not it, and I want to unpack that again a little bit more. The word foreknowledge should probably be better rendered foreordination. Foreordained. God's foreknowledge is not about him seeing something in an individual and then making a decision. Rather, it's about God simply making a decision out of his own free sovereign will. We see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Because of those whom he foreknew, when we hear the word, you know, Adam knew his wife. Knowing is often related to a, an intimate knowledge of another individual. Sometimes it's, it's intimate uh, knowledge within marriage. Sometimes it's an intimate relationship. So when it says that those, uh, because of, of those whom he foreknew, it's those he foreordained, those whom he foreloved, he chose to bestow his love upon them before they had done anything. Romans 9.23, we see that again. in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. It's not based on him seeing anything down in time. Scripture is abundantly clear. God has never chosen anyone because he saw something good in them. Romans 9.16 so, it, that, so then it does not depend on the one who wills or on the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. That means that when a person confesses their sin, repents, believes in Christ, and places their faith in him, that is the fruit of their election, not the basis of their election. a lot. We've, we've already covered a lot here. I know. I hope at this, at this point, it's all of us are feeling humbled by it all. It should radically change the way we, we look at what God has done in our lives. So let me try to put this in perspective and ask why? Why is God? Why does God do this? 
Is it because God was up there in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they've just been hanging out for a couple of eternities, and they're like, we're kind of bored. You know, like sometimes people, kids leave the house, and a married couple's like, let's get a dog. It's kind of boring and quiet around here. Let's get a dog. Was that what was happening? Was that like, you know, let's make some people. It's getting kind of quiet up here these days. No, God is perfectly happy and content within the Trinity. He needs nothing. He has everything. He is perfect happiness, perfect delight. He does all things according to the purpose of his will. So he didn't elect out of need. He didn't elect out of loneliness. So why does he do it? In one sense, we can say we don't know why he chooses whom he chooses, but we do get a glimpse as to why he elects. So once more, we go back to the book I seem to reference so often, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 specifically. And in Ephesians chapter 1, there is this common refrain to the praise of his glorious grace. We see it, let's read verses 5 and 6. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 7 says, according to the riches of his grace. It's to glorify himself. It's to glorify himself. Is that wrong of God? Is it vain? Is he, is he, is he a vain God saying, I want, I want to showcase myself to everybody. So I'll save some and not others. It is vain for any of us to draw the spotlight on us. You know why? Because none of us are perfect. None of us are glorious. But God truly being the perfect being, the one in whom has life within himself himself, and animates all things and has the power to save is the source of love. To draw attention to himself is the most natural thing. It is wrong of us to do that in ourselves because we're not what's most glorious. But if God is truly who, what is most glorious, and he is, by drawing attention to himself, he's actually doing the most loving thing. Because the most loving thing anyone can do is point another to that which ultimately satisfies. And so God choosing to elect some, he glorifies himself by showing his grace. A grace we would not have known had he not done it. By God choosing to pass over others, he showcases and glorifies his justice, which we, would right, we rightly know then. He does this to glorify himself. It brings him delight. And if it, what brings God delight should bring us delight. This is why one of the things about the doctrine of God's decrees and election are so important, because if we can't find ourselves delighting and worshiping him for this, then what we're saying is there is something that delights God that, we don't, that we're not delighting in. So we're missing something then. In Romans 9, again, verses 22 and 23, we get an insight again. Why is God doing this? Why is God electing some and not electing others? And I, admittedly, these are two really difficult verses to read. They disrupt the natural man. It disrupts how we think. Starting in verse 22. And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath, and to make known his power and to make his power known 
endured with much patience, vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Prepared there doesn't mean he created them for that purpose. Prepared beforehand is talking back to that doctrine, the decree of election in eternity past. Again, somebody will say, that's not fair. You're not God, first of all. So we have to be careful that we don't speak above our pay grade. But the Apostle Paul knew that this was going to disrupt some people. Look at in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, he anticipates this. He says, what shall we say then? Is there an unrighteousness with God? He anticipates people are going to say, that's not fair. He says, may it never be. He shows that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. But in verse 17, he says it again, speaking of Pharaoh, Moses and Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you in order that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. The whole deliverance of Israel from Egypt was, again, not to deliver Israel chiefly, but to bring glory to God through delivering Israel. This is why God elects. Paul anticipates another question, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Well, if God's doing it, how can, he, how can, he, how can I be at fault for it? I love Paul's answer in verse 20. I mean, basically saying like, who do you think you are? On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Paul is like, I'm not even entertaining that question. It's so foolish. Who do you think you are to question what God does? He does it to glorify himself. God chief reason for electing you was to glorify himself. You are supposed to serve as a follower of Christ as a trophy of his grace. Now, I want to make a distinction here between election and salvation. They're not the same thing. Election is what God did in eternity past. Salvation is something that happens in real time when somebody confesses, repents, and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're not the same thing. God didn't save you before he created the world. He elected you before he created the world. He saved you in real time. For those who were able to, a few months back, attend the regional conference by G3, we covered something called the Order of Salvation. In Latin, it's called the Ordo Salutis. I want to briefly just, that'll be a whole nother series. But let me just, let me just list the categories. We won't, have, we won't have time to go through all the scriptures for it because that would be a whole nother conversation on what these things mean. But God elected you in eternity past. That's the first step in your salvation. Before anything was created, you are, if you are a follower of Christ, you are already in the heart of God. Think about that. Tell me that's not a beautiful thing, that before he made anything, you as a son or daughter already existed in his heart, in that, in that role. 
Then there was a point after your election where you came into the world, you were born, and at some point in your life, you heard the gospel, the gospel call. It was proclaimed to you that you are dead in your sins and that your only hope is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life as fully man and fully God, who died a substitutionary death on the cross, where the wrath of God was poured on him for all who would believe. He was dead buried for three days and raised, showing that he defeated the power of sin and death. And if you would believe upon him, you could receive forgiveness and eternal life. That was the gospel call you heard. And when you heard that call, God, by the Holy Spirit, then gave you a new heart. Still God doing everything. God gave you a new heart at that moment. And when you heard that gospel call, life opened up in you. And then there was conversion. I believe. I repent. I trust. And when you did that, whether it was audibly or quietly in your heart, however that took place for you, in a bedroom, at a church, wherever, in a car, listening to a sermon on the radio, when in that moment of conversion happened, at that moment, God justified you. He declared you as righteous based on what Jesus had done. You weren't saved by any works of your own, but on the works of Christ. So then the God, the father could look upon you as living, have lived the perfect life of God, the son, fully accepted by him. And when he justified you, he adopted you. You became his son or his daughter. And now you live in this life being progressively sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you through the word of God and the local church. And you will continue if you are truly have been elected in eternity past to persevere. You will slip, you will stumble, you'll get bruised and banged up, but you'll persevere. And when it's all said and done and you die or Jesus cracks the sky and returns, whichever happens first, then you will be brought into eternity with him and be glorified. That is your salvation, but it all begins with election. God decree of election over your life. I want to give you two verses for election, though. The first comes from 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and in faith in the truth. He elected, he chose. I'd submit to all of you, go read Ephesians chapter one. Just take the next week to slowly pray it verse by verse. There's a lot of doctrine. So let me give us a couple points of why this matters in the day-to-day life. I mean, we should already see why it matters because it makes much of God. But the first, one of the first reasons this do- what this doctrine should be producing is not debate, but devotion. It should lead us to praise him. God's decree of election should lead to praise. In Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, a lot of this conversation of election and choosing and and, and repenting, this is where the whole debate is happening in Paul's letter of Romans. But listen to how he ends Romans 11 after unpacking all this. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. It ends in praise. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. Again, I was submitting to you. That's it's all about praise. It's all about doxology. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses two through four. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father, knowing, brothers, beloved by God, your election. I pray that we walk away this Lord's evening praising him for this. It's also a source of comfort, though. If God chose you, you can't lose your salvation. You don't have to sit up at night just, I don't know, I don't know. Am I still in? Do I still believe what's going on here? It's the object of your faith that saves, not the size of it. We struggle. But God has chosen, elected from eternity past. This is why Paul gives that beautiful word of encouragement and comfort at the end of Romans chapter 8. Listen to Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I just stop there. He who did not spare his own son. Verse 33, who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake, we're being put to death all the day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he elected you. Because he elected you. Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they'll follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. He's not in the business of losing his children. He elected you. And that's also a great comfort for our evangelism. My sheep hear my voice. The fact that God elects is why we can go out and proclaim without any fear, why we don't need to put any pressure of ourselves, why we don't need gimmicks and carnal tricks to draw people to Christ. We simply proclaim the gospel because God who is elected is the God who will regenerate. And so the doctrine of 
God's decree of election leads us to praise. It leads us to comfort. It should also lead us to humility. In Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. In this way, then, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has also come to be. But if by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Then you go down to 20 and 21. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Some people like to get really arrogant. and I, Almost every young seminarian guy, myself included, when they first begin to discover this beauty of God's sovereignty, election, predestining work, it becomes just fuel for debate and look how smart I am. But then it should really humble you because you didn't do anything. Even your ability to understand the doctrine of God's decree is completely a work of God. And lastly, it should be this decree of election should be fuel for devotion. So I want to share a quote by Jonathan Edwards and how he talks about this quote. The more you have a rational knowledge of divine things, the more opportunity will there be when the spirit shall be breathed into your heart to see the excellency of these things and to taste the sweetness of them. End quote. Let me read that again. I really hope you get my rational knowledge. It means the ability to perceive, to understand rightly the scriptures. The more you have a rational knowledge of divine things, the more opportunity will there be when the spirit shall be breathed into your heart to see the excellency of these things and to taste the sweetness of them. I love that part, to taste the sweetness of them. Theology matters because it leads, it's the fuel for our devotion. The understanding of divine things brings us to greater and greater heights of adoration of God. It's why the more we live in the word of God, the sweeter it should become to us. The word of God is unlike anything else, right? I, I, I love Chinese food. But if I eat Chinese food every day, I get tired of Chinese food. The word of God is not like that. The more you feast, the sweeter it becomes, the more you desire of it. That is a chief hallmark of somebody who genuinely has been elected by God from eternity past and is one of his children now. So with that, let me close in a word of prayer. And then I, there might be questions on that. We will definitely uh, seek to answer them for those who do. You got to scoot out. I get that as well. But let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, recognizing that these are weighty matters. And they can be difficult for perhaps some of us who were taught differently. Perhaps we were taught that we chose you. And then you responded to our choosing. Or that you just needed us and loved us and yearned for us. And that's why you did it all. Whatever those wrong notions are, Lord, I pray that you would permanently erase them from the minds and hearts of your people. That we would see, Lord, that you have elected from eternity past. And if we are part of the elect, then we must humbly praise you and find comfort in that. It should be fuel for our devotion of you because it shows us who you are. You are the God who seeks to glorify yourself in election. 
by displaying your grace and displaying your justice. And God made this doctrine of election also rightly fuel us to go out without fear and hesitation in the proclamation of the gospel, because we know that those whom you've elected will respond. It's not on us. This doctrine, we know, Lord, historically has been the fuel behind such great missionary efforts, efforts and revivals. So, Father, we thank you that we don't have to worry about the results. We leave that to you. We just proclaim out of excitement and love for you that salvation can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.